Okay, so if you grew up like I did, then getting straight A's was probably not good enough. You probably had to get some A pluses. And then also, there wasn't anything like if you got accepted into Harvard. Or in my case, you know, I got to Berkeley. And so that was like pretty decent, I guess, for a public school education. Today's interview is with Marie Bigham, who's the founder and executive director of ACCEPT, and that stands for Admissions, Community, Cultivating Equity, and Peace Today. It's an advocacy group and community that centers racial justice in the college admissions process and profession. And I think it's super fascinating if you are, you know, thinking about higher education for your child or just to get a different lens to see what's happening in the world of college education today. And, you know, for me growing up, I was very much programmed to believe that that was like the ultimate goal was that you better fucking hustle to get into a great school and that that status you would carry with you throughout years and years of your life. Marie was recently named a global game changer by Facebook, and she's a national leader in college admission redesign and reform. She has almost 25 years in the college admissions ecosystem, and she served on the board of directors for the National Association of College Admission Counseling and many more organizations. It's a really fascinating conversation because she talks about her early childhood and growing up biracial, growing up in predominantly white environments, and also how she realized at one point that her mother raised her and her brother differently because of the way that they looked. So because one of them looked more white, her mother raised that child in one way, and then because one of them looked more Asian, her mother raised that child in a different way. So some gender conversations also play into this as well. And Maria is very open and forthcoming with both her professional and personal stories. So I hope you get a lot out of today's interview. Welcome to the Fuck Saving Face podcast. I'm your host, Judy Tsui, and together we'll explore mental and emotional health for Asian Americans, especially breaking through any taboo topics. Life may not always be pretty, but it is indeed beautiful. Let's make your story beautiful today. Welcome back to the Fuck Saving Face podcast, where we talk about all things mental and emotional health for the quote unquote model minority. We're here to break taboos, to really share stories so that you can feel connected to other people's experiences, knowing that you're not alone, to remove any guilt and shame that you might feel thinking that, you know, you've done these things or you've experienced these things. Nobody else knows. Given the conversations that I've had with Marie, so Marie is my guest today, Marie Begum. We have a lot that we have related with each other on, even though our backgrounds culturally and you know professionally have been different. So I hope that you'll get the same experience today. So Marie Bigham is the founder and executive director of Accept and her organization, which stands for Admissions, Community, Cultivating Equity and Peace Today, which I love. We talked before we got onto this interview about how we think that so many of the things that we experience as the quote-unquote model minority is unique to us. However, because of the populations that Marie works with, she's also experienced the same tendencies and the same types of tiger parenting, let's say, in white families or in other ethnic groups. So I'm just going to turn it over to Marie for you to share a little bit about your cultural background and your professional background, where you are in the world, and just to welcome you to the podcast today. Ah, thank you so much, Judy. I'm stoked to be here. Really, this is like like a highlight of my life. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So my name is Marie Bigham. She, her, ethnically, and I didn't. My my background is I am Vietnamese and white. My mother is Vietnamese. My father was white. Because of my age and my very Gen X ness of me, um, but also because of the, I think this is an important thing because I was born in that in the loving generation. 
you know, five years only after the Loving v. Virginia decision that made interracial marriage okay, mm. and subsequently my, my being okay. I, I think of myself in many ways as other, with a big capital O. This is kind of how I have always approached the world. So that we talked about me really diving into my Asian-ness and my Vietnamese-ness is something that's relatively new to me, something I've only explored in my identity really in depth in like the last five or six years. So just to put that out there, I live in New Orleans. It's such a pleasure and a privilege to live here. I've lived all over the country, grew up in first Southern Illinois in a small little town, and then later suburban St. Louis. But my uh, husband and I have lived all over and we're here in New Orleans which just to acknowledge is also the ancestral and unceded home of the Chidimacha, the Homa, and the Choctaw Indians. And it's mm. really important to me that I acknowledge that, but also say, you know, that I honor and work in partnership often in those communities as well. So my work for 23 years, 24 years, was in college admissions, mm. which, you know, lots of times in the Asian community, like, oof, this is a conversation folks want to have. So I worked mm-hmm. in college admissions at um, my alma mater, Washington University in St. Louis, for seven years. And after that, worked at four of the most selective, fancy private schools around the country as a college counselor, as director of college counseling. And had the privilege, too, of kind of get, gaining a really, like, large voice nationally in media and in leadership of of different organizations that that my profession engages with. And in 2016, I started an organization in the middle of the night because I was pissed that is now called Accept, but I'm just going to assume we can cast on the show. Oh, yeah. Totally. Um, Originally, we were called Admissions People Sick of This Shit. Um, uh, Mike Brown's murder in St. Louis and Ferguson really changed my life and how I viewed the world and my responsibility to move through this world. And in 2016, there was a, another shooting Ooh. in Dallas, Texas, which was a city where I had lived. And it was just, again, pissed off in the middle of the night. I was like, Ugh, I don't know how to fix these huge ills in the world, but I've got this sphere of influence. It's admissions. Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of racial stuff that we need to fix in this, including in the profession itself. So I started what I thought would be like a small little Facebook group of like 40 or 50 friends hanging out. And is now almost 7,000 members. Yay! Um, thanks. You know, mission of Accept is that we empower professionals in our ecosystem who want to center anti-racism and racial justice in the path to college and in the profession and community of college admissions. So I've been doing that full time for almost two years now. That's amazing. That's where we are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things that we can dive into a little bit later, because this is a weightier topic, is the systemic Mm -hmm. issues that we Mm -hmm. experience that we might not even be cognizant of. But one of the things that I wanted to address is the fact that you mentioned that you're only now kind of coming into your racial identity and really embracing Mm -hmm. that and owning that. I don't think you're alone, because I think that that was the same way it was for me. It's taken a long time for me to stop shunning elements of myself mm-hmm. and just better understanding it. And I've actually, you know, gone to live in Asia. I've lived in Taiwan. I've lived in China. Yeah. So I've had all these random different experiences to experience myself and my identity in different yeah. ways. But you and I share the same upbringing in that we were raised in predominantly white neighborhoods. And you have mm-hmm. an exceptionally uh, unique circumstance too, because your white family was also a family of prominence in the right. small town where you were. So can you talk a little bit about that? For sure. Yeah. It's interesting because there is, I think, unfortunately in the United States and something that I grew up with, this stereotype, this ugly story of Vietnamese women mm-hmm. and U.S. soldiers in that time. I've never watched any of those 80s Vietnam was hell movies. 
because this, I watched only those. The only women I saw there who looked like me, who looked like my mom, who looked like my aunties, were sex workers, were dangerous people, or were background just being killed. So I grew up in a town, I was born in 73, my mom did not come here as a refugee. My mom came here before the end of the war and actually came here from France. My mom didn't grow up really immersed in Vietnamese culture either. She was one of those families that um, was very wealthy and they were able to leave before things got sticky. So most of my mom's life before the U.S. was actually in France. Mm. So that's always kind of tricky too to think about. So mom came here in 73, was born in 73, but we were in this tiny town in southern Illinois where my father was one of seven kids, we were the only non-white people in the town of 2,500. And at the same time, like that could have been a really dangerous situation, I think, for many, and many, many people of color who've experienced that. My dad's family was prominent in the town, extremely well-respected. And so I think that there was a lot of protection that we had in that way right? Like they were, they were respected people. And if that family was okay with this somehow, like it was going to be fine. And yet there were moments where I remember things really starkly, right? Like being at 4th of July parade, I was want to say I was four maybe, and people shouting at me and my mom and then my baby brother to like go back to where we came from. And I'm like, oh, we live down the street. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But some of the scarier memories, I, I can think of two or three times when I was maybe in first or second grade where people threw rocks through the windows of our house and happened to come through my bedroom that had like written on it, like cheats go home and shit like that. So those moments happened too. I didn't really have any experience with my Vietnamese family, but I have two older sisters who were adopted, who were fully Vietnamese, but came here extremely young. Mm -hmm. And so little connection in that way. But my mom's family who were here, like we didn't have a lot of interaction with them. We didn't have interaction certainly in town or anything with anybody Asian at all or anyone non-white. So but I always knew, like I said, that I wasn't white. Like that was clear. Mm-hmm. I didn't really have an understanding of what it meant to be Asian. When I was 11, we moved to suburban St. Louis, much bigger city and much more diverse. Like, it's like right away, boom, just much more diverse. No Vietnamese who I knew of, but sort of like Asian people. And, but I immediately identified with people of color, but I knew that wasn't also mine. And also being half white, like, you know that too, right? Like, you know, you know how you can navigate things or not. And so that's where I think this idea of like other always being that core almost identity for me. Whenever I filled out forms for college, the box I checked said other. Mm. Because you couldn't pick two. Mm. That wasn't a thing, right? Mm -hmm. So I could only be other with a big fat capital O in many ways. Even when I did admissions and was really focused on that, my focus was always on students of color, marginalized students, but did not quite know how to dive into the nuances of Asian-ness through that. I was always able to be a safe place for Asian students and had that ability to code switch with Asian families, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. When, when so many of those tropes that we share among our community about college missions would come up, I'd be like, no, 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 that's not true. And you can trust me. Like I'm one of us. Like I could always do that. Right. Mm-hmm. But we used to like joke, not joke in my family that like, I was not the Asian kid. Mm-hmm. Like my brother was the Asian child. I was the white child. I am very headstrong, extremely outspoken. Some dumb ones, but true. I'm allergic to ginger. What Asians are allergic <laughs> to ginger? Me. I still can't use chopsticks. I don't think it was ever like this adamant, like I'm pushing against. But it was hard for me to understand how I could 
not being able to do math well and not being able to eat ginger did not mean I was less Asian, but I would always make those dumb jokes and crack that and try to figure out my identity in that way. And then, and like I said, like maybe five, six years ago, prior to even starting Accept, I started to really have a different experience with my identity. And what does it mean to be an Asian woman? What does it mean to be a multiracial Asian woman in this country? To understand that there were many others like me who didn't speak the language to do that, but still that's part of it. Like that's only been a couple of years and it's been fascinating and challenging mm-hmm. too. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. It was a lot of words. No, no, no. Don't apologize. <laughs> How many of us have, you know, and I still do it to this day. Mm-hmm. And I ask myself, is this something that I should stop doing in mm-hmm. regards to like making the joke before someone else makes it? Right. And, you know, saying like, I've definitely said this before. I'm the whitest Asian person that you know, because right. I also grew up in a predominantly white environment where right. my messaging at home was do everything that you can to fit in with the white people. But also when you come home, you better speak Mandarin, you know, defer right. elders, do all this stuff. So it was so confusing. Mm-hmm. The school culture is one in which raise your hand, be outspoken, mm-hmm. you know, like get to the head of the class, you demonstrate your skills and your magnificence, essentially. And that is right. not what we were taught at home. At home, it's you better just listen to what I say. Don't make a noise. I don't really want to see you. And if I do mm-hmm. see you, it, not, it better not be because you're getting in trouble. You better bring home right. and all the stuff. So right. it made it very difficult because, you know, in that environment, I was taught to do everything that I could to eschew my identity, to fit in with the prominent majority, mm-hmm. and then also figure out ways to navigate honoring my culture and bringing that forward. And I think one of the yeah. stories that you shared with me, which you just alluded to, was this awareness that you had when you were at an event and you had feedback where, you know, you started to realize your otherness a bit more even. And then you went home and talked to your mom and asked her about it, asked mm-hmm. her about like the Asianness and all of that. And then she said, oh, well, you know, I raised you as my white right. kid and I raised your brother right. as the Asian one. So can yeah. you talk a little bit about like what sure. traits were and like how that <laughs> impacted you? Oh, sure. <laughs> and you know, what's even funnier is I, and I mentioned this earlier, I watched the HBO human reality show House of Ho, or as I love to call it, the crazy, rich, real Vietnamese house families of Houston. And after watching that, I was like, oh, I was raised way more Vietnamese than I knew. Mm. Way more. But yeah, so again, working in college counseling, it was like the early 2000s, and I was having this experience with a family, and the parents were Chinese immigrants to the U.S., son born here in the States, at a very fancy, mostly white private school in San Diego. And he was also someone who went to like Chinese school on the weekend. Like he was a kid trying to figure that out himself. And his parents were approaching the college process in a way that I thought was really harmful. And mm. I wasn't breaking through in the way I thought. And this was right at the beginning of that whole idea of like tiger parent, tiger mom coming out and that being celebrated and mm-hmm. not feeling okay with that. So mm-hmm. I remember calling my mom and, and saying, can we talk about this? Because I don't understand how this being raised this way is being described this way. And I'm seeing this. And yet that's not what I I experienced. It's much, much easier for me and my mom to talk about these things with an academic distanced view Mm. as she herself is an academic. We can't talk about it in a personal way because that's a lot, right? But I can talk about another family this way. (laughs) in that comfortable space. But this was surprising to me when her response was, oh yeah, because you're my white child. And Joe, my brother, he's my Asian child. And she said when she had those tendencies to try to push or whatever, that my dad 
stepped in right away. Mm. And I'm my dad's firstborn and that he was very protective. Like, no, you can't yell at Marie for that. And you know, she's trying her best. And at the same time, like the expectations of my family were extremely high. So mm-hmm. he might've been saying, you know, she's trying her best, but then he would be like, and your best isn't good enough right now. How do you get better? So the, I, like, that was the same. It was just, if one was wrapped in a hug and more defensive and one was just like, you're doing this. But when mom said that, you know, you're my white child, he's my Asian child. It was this very strange, like pain that I felt of like the one person who has been my role model of Asian just told me that I wasn't Asian. Mm. And I was like 30 at the time. I mean, I wasn't a child. Mm-hmm. I was like, whew. that's a thing. (laughs) Thank God for therapy. And I'm very lucky that despite many cultural, you know, I think conversations about it, because my mother was a professor in social work, like therapy and mental health was always a part of my life. I don't want to say that without sounding, but I always had someone to talk about things about in that way. But then when mom started to describe it, it was really interesting. And she said, you know, you're headstrong. You, you've always been outspoken. You've never wanted people to tell you what to do. She's like, we were always going to butt heads that way. Whereas your brother, he is more compliant and he wants to be more of a pleaser. And he would just say, yes, mom, and do those things. And so it was interesting because it wasn't necessarily you're more white or he's more Asian. It was personality traits of how mm-hmm. compliance, but she was reading it through that lens of her cultural upbringing that I didn't know. And I didn't, I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was one of those moments where I was like, whoo, like who the hell am I? If the, the singular Asian I know best was just like, girl, you're not us. Mm-hmm. It's similar to not racially related, mm-hmm. but my mom, I'd always look to her as like the writer, you know, mm-hmm. even though she wasn't necessarily published and she was a mm-hmm. Chinese school teacher and everything, but like writing, I had always been told was her thing. And then one day as an adult, I asked her about it and she goes, oh, I don't know. Writing just came easy to me. And I was like, and she's like, I- I'm not like a writer. Like I don't love writing. And I was like, what? <laughs> Wait, that's whole, what? Like, I know. Cause my whole professional work mm-hmm. being a writer thinking that like there was someone in my life who like modeled that. Um, right. But I think, it's, you know, strange. Yeah. It's really, it's like, it's a total mindset shift. Um, and you know, how many times has that happened to every one of us where all of a sudden one little comment or something just changes our whole belief system or our understanding of what we thought was true and what wasn't, you know, one of the things that you mentioned that I want to hit upon too, is the idea of therapy. I fully believe in having an objective person that you can talk Mm -hmm. to. I was in therapy for years when I had my eating disorder. You know, Mm -hmm. I've hit depression multiple times, especially with Mm -hmm. postpartum depression, where it was really, really bad. And even Mm -hmm. like getting on medication and stuff. So all these things that just even as any normal person would probably have challenges with and like stigma attached to it. But then when you add on top of that, the lens of you save face and you don't go ask for help. Yes. When I was living in China the first time around, one of my friends from junior high happened to start a blog before it was like ever a big thing. Mm -hmm. She happened to marry the co-founder of Zanga at the time. Uh. He was like, hey, you know, like you're a really good writer. Why don't you start this blog? You're living in China. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. So I started it just to share about my adventures. I had no idea that along the way I would start writing about my eating disorder, about my mental health, about all these things. So then they started, they shared my site on the homepage of the site. And then all of a sudden I started getting thousands of readers a day. And because because wow. their demographic was Asian American, the readers and the readership I had was Asian American. And how many comments I got of, 
I wish that I could go to therapy. I wish that I had someone to talk to. I like mm-hmm. your th- your writing is the closest thing that I can get to some sort of processing mm-hmm. of what it is that I'm experiencing. So, you know, when it comes to therapy and the access is a whole other topic, whether or not you have access and finding a provider who specifically understands your unique background and dynamic, you know, making sure you interview the therapist. Not every therapist is great. I've experienced mm-hmm. ones that are not and can be more harmful than do good. But, you know, can you talk about just therapy and, and also how it plays into kind of the things that you've seen in academics, like what people need to know and maybe just to change yeah. that discourse a bit? Yeah. Like I said, I'm, I'm very, very lucky that because my, my mother's profession and her academic focus, which was social work, that therapy, introspection, working on oneself in that way was a given, that it was a part of her profession and her professional training. Mm-hmm. And so that was a good thing, right? Like I had access that young, like I said, age 12, which would have been mid 80s. That's unusual. Mm-hmm. A part of that too, and I just have to acknowledge this, is that I mean, I was a messy kid. Who wasn't? But, you know, my, my parents had four of us to raise. My older sister had much bigger challenges than I did. Mm-hmm. And so they had a lot going on. And I think some of it was like offloading me. Like, yeah, you know, we're going to hire someone to take care of this here. Like someone tries to do gymnastics. Someone going to do this. And sometimes I wonder if that in some ways has created some of those challenges and having those emotional relationships like with my mom in that way, because there's always been someone else. Like I've never had to have to confide and process with her because I've always had others mm-hmm. in that way where like I was told this was the space to do that. Mm-hmm. If that makes some sense. Yeah. But it's always been an important part of my life is when I was young, when I did not have the means to be choosing, you know, when I was looking for after college, like doctors who would do a sliding scale, Mm-hmm. You know, something like someone who would understand, like, I can afford $10 a week. And so that is. When I could start being choosy, though, it became important to me to work with a woman of color, if at all possible. I've at times had white women as therapists, but not men after, mm-hmm. after my college years. And that's just my preference and my mm-hmm. choice. And it's one of the things, this is going to sound frivolous, but it's true. Whenever I've moved to a new city, like my, my checklist is, you know, new therapist, hair mm-hmm. person, manicurist, mm-hmm. like those have got to happen like right mm-hmm. away. And I think now I'm just like, I have a good like spot to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when I first started going to therapy when I was a kid, I couldn't like what we would now call anxiety. I think mm-hmm. in the 80s, it was just like this really intense kid who bouncing a lot and that need to be perfect all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I have had definite bouts of depression that were real, like intense, go on medication, none that were debilitating, thankfully, but moments where like I wasn't able, I didn't have the perspective to say, your reactions are outblown right now. The constant flood of emotions 24 seven isn't right. The up all night with the hateful self-talk, that's not, these aren't supposed to supposed to happen. So I've had, you know, three or four moments like that where it took me a while. I needed professional help. Mm-hmm. It's not fair to rely only on your spouse and friends. Like they're yeah. not, they're not the containers for that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's always been a thing that that's, I've, I've really tried to be cognizant of, you know? Yeah. So that's something that's always been important. Figuring out later in life, and this, this goes to my Asian-ness, figuring out later in life that I have a math learning disability, mm. and adult ADD. The learning disability we learned about 
earlier in life, like my mid twenties, but the adult ADD, not until I think my 39th or 40th birthday. Mm. And it was just, I was just constantly anxious and, uh, uh, and couldn't figure out why everything was so easy before. And I was always so productive and moving so fast. Suddenly I just couldn't do it. And I thought it was depression. I thought it was a lot of things. And my therapist very graciously was like, describe your workspace. Mm. Uh, and this was a time like as a counselor I'd have to write a lot of college recommendations and I would do it at home and I'd be like okay so like I have like four laptops set up one in my living room one in my kitchen one in the laundry one in my bedroom so if I'm like oh gosh I've been writing here for 10 minutes but I need a drink I'll, you know catch myself doing dishes like nope there's a laptop there I could do that like no it's not a thing <laughs> Figuring out that it was something that I had managed and made into my superpower Ooh. for so long Ooh. that my life was in a place where that tool wasn't working anymore, that it had actually turned against me. And I, so I think for me in the last like 10 years, that's probably been like my biggest therapeutic breakthrough, Ooh. figuring that out and really understanding through that my drive, understanding the the idea that productivity is the most important thing to me and but learning disabilities ADD we don't talk about those things in the Asian community like that's not a thing and you add in the you know my womanness when I had problems with math two messages were always told to me it's okay you're a girl math is hard or b you're Asian you should be good at this you must just be lazy Mm. no one was noticing I was writing numbers backwards and out of order until my early 20s, right? But that, those two stereotypes just kept bumping heads. Mm. And ADD and those things about ADD, like again, in many Asian cultures, it's something Multitasking is like amazing. Yep. <laughs> my mom used to say that, like, yep. how can you multitask to the nth degree, essentially? It's so to the point that, you know, like you're doing 50 bajillion things at once. And, um, you know, and it wasn't even until the last like few decades, I would say, where they were just saying like, okay, well, multitasking your brain actually doesn't function like that and you know you can't really do things productively in that way but growing up like in to this day I still get a little bit anxious if I'm like I don't know how to have downtime I don't know how to like not be productive because then what's my value that I'm bringing to anything or anyone so and I think one of the nice things about this pandemic is we've all had to kind of shift that ever Mm -hmm. so slightly right Mm -hmm. and at first it was like y'all if you don't have your hustle on right now like you're not making it with all this time like and then I think a different realization has kicked in like "Mm." No, it's okay to just sit mm-hmm. and be. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's, so that's kind of my big therapeutic story. And honestly, I talk about my mental health challenges. I don't, I can't say like totally honestly all the time. Like I'm still pretty known broadly for, for making things seem effortless. Mm-hmm. As someone told me the other day and I was like, oh, yeah, I, should, I shouldn't do that all the time. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not true. And it sets I mean, up expectations for other people. It does. And, you know, because we're always comparing our insides based on someone else's outside and social media exacerbates that very much so that mm-hmm. you think that the grid that you see and what happens in that square is exactly how life looks. You don't see like everything that's going on outside the square. So I think that, you know, one of the things that I even learned in parenting too, and I heard this from a friend of mine, where she started observing that one of her children was very anxious about like needing to do things correctly. And I saw that in my daughter too. And I thought, okay, well, she's either, you know, getting this from some of the modeling that I'm demonstrating, or perhaps it's like an inherent quality in her because, you know, it could very well be, it might be innate. But one of the things that my friend recommended is that she started purposely making mistakes or at least calling them out loud and saying like, oh, I put the dish in the wrong cabinet or, you know, like I did this, I made a mistake. Oh, well. And so helping yourself in that way helps other people too. Mm Because I think 
for many people who are listening, I bet that you've also all heard the compliment, quote unquote compliment of, oh, but like, you know, all this stuff comes so easy to you or like, you know, how do you do all of these things? And meanwhile, you're like a duck that's like all serene on the top and paddling like crazy underneath the water. <laughs> so right. yeah. That's I think, a hard one. Yeah. And I think that the more authentic and vulnerable we can be, however that looks for us, and not everybody needs to see it, you know, like you can just have your inner circle, but it will give other people permission to just kind of exhale. And, you know, how many people I know in my life who hold themselves to very high rigid standards. If the piece of feedback that I hear all the time is you have ridiculously high expectations of yourself, like constantly. And a lot of that is like, you know, pulling it apart as an adult. Like how do we really understand what our core values are? Like based on what, who I am as a person, not just what was imprinted upon me growing up. Academically, how have you seen all of this Asian-ness translated and I... what would you like to see differently? <laughs> Such a big question. Oh gosh. You know, first thing that comes to my mind, it's something that, that, that I have to acknowledge like is very, very fresh because it's a couple of conversations I've had. I need the academic world, the non-Asian academic world to understand we're not a monolith, that the model minority stereotype is actually pretty bad, that when as academics, when as counselors, when well-meaning people say things like, oh God, don't write your SPS a math competition. You're just going to like every other Asian kid. Like that's harmful. Also, it's racist. Mm. I would love for academia to quit that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love for, again, my professional space is college admissions. I would love for, I'm going to struggle with putting this correctly. I would love for the whole idea that Asians are against affirmative action to be disaggregated, to have like a very real conversation of those, uh, you know, with Asian identities, what's their background, what's the educational attainment, because we, it's a very different story, but also to be able to say to those communities convincingly, like affirmative action is not the thing that's keeping you out of college. It's actually whiteness and white supremacy. Mm. And the whole idea of the thumb on the scale for race is actually all about whiteness. Mm. And I get anxious when sometimes either I hear or there's the stereotype of Asians are against affirmative action because they think that black kids are taking their spots. Like, Mm. there's so much packed into that. Mm. And they hear it from so many directions. So that I want to figure out how to fix that stupid, pervasive, and deeply incorrect storyline that's so hurtful, right? Because how that plays out, unless the big stomach issue, but how it plays out like in my former office as the college counselors, the family that says to me completely innocently and well-meaningly, should, should my child not check the box that says they're Asian, won't that hurt them? Should they not look at colleges in California because they don't like Asians? That the whole idea of selective college admissions should be driven in a way that asks Asian students to subjugate identity, to hide identity, to form their identity and form value systems around it. I wish somehow we could really get our head around that and fix that because it's so harmful in so many ways and so difficult to fight. Well, I think that the work that you're doing is so incredible and it's like a step in that direction. I think encouraging more people to speak up and share their truth, however that's going to look, whether that's in a conversation with someone to change their mind or to expand consciousness on both ends or actually Mm -hmm. advocating for somebody else. I think that, you know, one of the things that I'm starting to come to terms with and realize is that in that scarcity mentality, which 
totally makes sense if you're raised by immigrant parents who had no money or struggled with money, that you're just thinking about yourself and like, what are we going to do to survive? But there's so much more to contribute. There's the idea of creating a legacy. There's the idea like you can help other people wherever you are, whatever means that you mm -hmm. have. And sometimes the best way that you can help people is, you know, advocating for someone else and right. advocating for yourself so that you feel comfortable doing that and bringing other people along for the ride mm -hmm. and challenging those like racist notions that we are also raised with in our own yes. families of origin. <laughs> like, yes. Let's just talk yes. about that for a second. <laughs> it has been one of my biggest personal struggles from every perspective of dealing with the anti-blackness that's deep in my family, whether the white side of the family or the Asian side of the family, certainly at times within myself in ways that I'm surprised by, like I was bathed in that water too. Mm -hmm. And I find that when we get to college conversations about admissions, that oof, that is a flare-up point that I have no patience for. Mm. And I really struggle of where I sit in mm. that. Because at times I will hear, you know, again, my colleagues of, of color who aren't Asian repeat really nasty Asian stereotypes because, well, you know, this is how it is. Like, no, that's being very anti-Asian. And yet then I'm in communities of mostly Asians. We're talking about college admissions. Like, those black kids didn't deserve those spots. I'm like, yep, that's wrong too. Also racist. <laughs> and it's like, where the fuck do I fit with this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? And yeah, but it's I mean, real. I, it's super real. It's hard to catch because, you know, when it's part of your pervasive dialogue, mm -hmm. you don't even think to challenge it, especially in Asian cultures, in my family particularly, being subordinate or challenging any sort of authority is not okay. Mm -hmm. So whatever I'm told, I'm going to assume that that's truth. And so mm -hmm. I've really encouraged my daughter to challenge authority with healthy respect. And mm -hmm. I tell her all the time, you are allowed to ask questions and challenge even your mom and your dad, mm -hmm. because we are not going to get it right all the time. So being able to, I think, become more aware. One of the books that I was reading is called Minor Feelings by Kathy. Oh, yeah. I mean, this book. There you go. Yeah, that yeah. one. <laughs> this is next on the stack. It's amazing yeah. because I think that starting to learn from these people who've done the research, who have personal experiences and then write about it. When you have the words to express the things that you're going mm -hmm. through or you have something to point to, it's so incredible because all of a sudden you're like, ah, that makes so much sense. It was floating right. around in my mind for so right. long and I just had no idea. So I think no, that... <laughs> no, 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 because I, I just moved this book off my shelf. It's another one I was going to hold up called mm. Race on Campus by Julie Park mm. from University of Maryland. Mm. And she rips apart all the ideas that Asian students are at a, either at a disadvantage in admissions or that brown and black students are the ones who are actively keeping like it, she really just drills into it and disaggregates the data into the different nationalities and communities. It's so good. That's amazing. I was going to ask you for some of your references since you brought that up, you know, and I think that when we talked before we got onto this mm -hmm. recording, I know that with all of the social justice challenges that have mm -hmm. come up over the last year, one of the things that I personally felt and didn't know how to address and other people that I've spoken with and interviewed also felt is that in this movement to uplift and raise black and brown voices, what happens to the Asian people? Because mm -hmm. when I grew up, I was called a minority, which okay. automatically puts you at like a lesser than status. So that term doesn't seem to fit anymore. Marginalized population, okay, but it's still, again, like similar. But 
person of color or woman of color. Like mm-hmm. that's not how I identified. And so I wanted to see if you had any thoughts personally or professionally on like mm-hmm. what to do with that, where you are. I don't know. <laughs> it's a lot. I struggled this summer too, so much. And like I said, like I was raised so not in an Asian community that oftentimes my sympathies, my loyalties immediately go to black and brown communities because that's what I was most adjacent to, especially in my younger years. And this this summer was a moment where I was like, oh, I'm not welcome in that space right now either. And it was a really personal, intense hurt that I couldn't understand. Mm-hmm. In conversations with other folks like us, which is other people of color, especially by the summer, like, how does that feel to have those, to have those other identities centered right now? It's not yours. It's not your story. Man, I just had to like, really had to have a coming terms with myself of like, is that just my whiteness really stepping out right now? Mm. Is that how in the Asian communities, our proximity to whiteness is playing at this moment? That we can't decenter ourselves in a moment when we clearly see the impact on these other communities being disproportionate to what we feel. If we can't decenter ourselves in this second, then how is that different than someone standing up and shouting "All Lives Matter"? Mm-hmm. Like I had to have some time with myself about that one because it was some pretty personal feelings, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, "That's just what that is. Like it's okay. Mm-hmm. That doesn't denigrate, take away from the hurt or racism that I've personally experienced." At that moment, it just wasn't the important one. It's not the important story right now, right? And I think it's just acknowledging that sometimes those, those stories aren't yours. Sometimes yeah. you have to stand in the back and support. And that's really coming to terms with allyship and, and I almost said apprentice. Um, that's really what it is to stand with someone and to work in community is in those hard moments to say, it's okay, I'm not centered. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that idea of like, you know, holding space. I mean, you, when I was teaching mm-hmm. a lot of yoga or mindfulness practices, it is, you're just holding space for whatever's coming up, whatever needs to be at the forefront, and then understanding that it'll change, mm-hmm. something else will take precedence. And so I think that that approach, and then also understanding like it doesn't make it any less of an effect for the racism and the traumas that we've experienced. Um, It doesn't take that away. It's like that idea of forgiveness that like, you know, just because you forgive someone doesn't mean that you excuse their actions or, you know, make that okay. So I think that that is huge. That was a really hard thing to come to. Like I really, I just have to acknowledge it was a lot of stumbles. It was a lot of falls. And like, here I am leading this group about racial equity. And I fucked this one up Mm. times too. Like I Mm. have to, I need to acknowledge that I I had to apologize a lot. Mm for not just the current, but also the past two. So those things, I, I, had to, I had to be a part of acknowledgement and accountability before I could do anything else. And some of that was just with myself. Right. And I love that understanding yeah. of accountability too, like really radical responsibility and mm-hmm. taking a look at ourselves. Also understanding that like we're all as humans stumbling and trying to figure out this time, this crazy, crazy time right. on the planet. <laughs> um, right. So let's give ourselves some grace in doing that. I know that, oh my gosh, I'm blanking out on her name. Tiny little woman. I went to see her live. Glennon Doyle. so her recent book that came out I actually really loved it even though when I actually went to go see her live I was like not such a big fan of like Mm -hmm. this thing but her book was so great and one of the things that she does talk about is how she was attacked for trying to shine a spotlight on black and brown voices when she is a white woman of privilege and so I think one of the things to understand as well is 
we have created that sense of cancel culture and we all, the easiest thing to do when we're hurting is to look for someone to blame. and to yeah. it. So that makes sense. Like as a human yeah. behavior, but how can we, you know, start to move beyond that? I heard this quote one time in a yoga class and I've always come back to it again and again is you may not be responsible for your first thought, but you are responsible for your next one. So our knee jerk reactions, whatever we learned growing up, however we're showing up. Okay. So we might have that reaction, but then the next step is let me take a moment and then choose our response. And how do I want to show up and who do I want to be? So I think that's one of the ways that we can hopefully give ourselves grace as we make those motions. And I like that you were saying too, that you took responsibility and you had to, you know, like make amends and really speak up for that. Because I think that's another thing that's not taught in Asian culture Mm -hmm. is to say you're sorry or to acknowledge where you've gone wrong. Right. (laughs) And so it is a bold act to say, I'm sorry. And to, you know, have that. And I remember that my sister and I, my sister's only three years younger than me. We Mm -hmm. were in, at a bar in Santa Monica, like a couple of years ago there was alcohol involved. So like, you know, emotions are running high. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some history was being yeah. brought up. Yeah. <laughs> and we contain multitudes. <laughs> <laughs> we were sitting at the bar and she started getting really upset at me. And I held the space for her and, you know, let her express. And the only time that I started like speaking back was when she started talking about parenting, which I'm like, well, you're not a parent right now. So mm-hmm. this is not a conversation that I yeah. want to be having. And then, you know, I couldn't go to sleep that night. I had to record some mindfulness yeah. tracks the next day. So I emailed her and I, you know, said, I want more than anything for us to be close as a family. Like we were not raised with that. We are actually very much at odds with each other because she's a lot like my mom and I'm a lot like my dad. Mm. So we were born innately to have differences. But I see what you're doing and I want to create that. So, but next time, can we not do it at a bar? And where we're like, you know, in public, if you want to, I'll go to a therapist with you. I'll do whatever it is that you want. But also... I feel like I'm the only person in our family and we have four kids as well. I'm the Mm -hmm. oldest of four. Who's ever said I'm sorry. And who's ever like tried to figure out some inroads to that. And so if you're going to blame me for all the stuff or like, you know, have this anger or whatever, I understand we all have different experiences. That's fine. But like, can you just acknowledge that? Like, that's something that I've tried to do. Like I recognize Mm -hmm. I was a bully growing up. I was a bully because I was, 10, 11, 12 asked to like all of a sudden become an adult. And the only modeling that I had was two parents were fighting with each other all the time and stressed. So, you know, I think that you doing that is such an act of like courage and strength and bravery. Honestly, like I think (laughs) the biggest thing for me, whenever folks ask like, what have you been biggest lessons in leading except for me, the most important thing I've learned in running this organization is the importance of apology mm. and the imp- importance of, of public apology in some situations. And not only is that hard to overcome because of how we were raised in our cultures, as women, we are both acculturated to over-apologize and oh, take yeah. responsibility, which I think for some of us then has meant being really reticent to do so because, damn, it, I don't want to seem like that, Right. And leaders, strength is seen as holding the line, right? So for me, overcoming all of those things, to me, was an intentional, I don't want to say radical, but an intentional, intentionally radical change in leadership mm-hmm. and what I wanted, a vision of how something could be led in a community to be different. Mm-hmm. Like I, I intentionally, because I was in too many situations 
where I saw leaders do everything, but for those reasons and for, you know, so many others, I'm like, no, I fuck up. I fuck up. And like you said, you know, you could, you don't control that first thought, but you control the second one. I'm terrible at letting that first thought out of my face and sometimes out into the world, in which time I have to like really pull it. Like I apologize. And oddly, it was Amy Poehler's book that <laughs> really taught me how to do that. There's this remarkable chapter in it where she talks about how she really fucked up something and her attempt to apologize was so poorly taken Mm -hmm. as it should have been. And there's a whole chapter about how it took her like a decade to figure out how to fix this situation. Mm -hmm. And and through it taught her how to apologize. Mm -hmm. You know, you acknowledge the harm you caused, you name it, you offer some kind of restitution you again take responsibility and you ask for nothing from the other person in return. Mm. But there's no but, there's no explanation, there's no justification. It is just, I'm acknowledging I screwed up. Here's how I screwed up. Here's how I believe I hurt you and harmed you. Here's how I'm going to try to do better in my life and in my world. And I appreciate you for taking the time to read this. Mm. Amazing. But it was Amy Poehler's chapter like, that taught me that. And so since leading, except like I've tried really, really hard to model that and to do that whenever necessary, mm. not over-apologize for things that are not my responsibility because it cheapens mm. it. Mm. But I'm not always good at it too. I mean, that's but. amazing that you're also doing it in a public forum and also just as a public service announcement saying, mm-hmm. I'm sorry that you feel that way is not a fucking apology. No. Like, <laughs> I have had that said to me and I'm like what how does that that's not an apology that's like discounting someone else's emotions and everyone can have their emotions they can have their reactions and their responses everybody's yeah. like you know has a right to whatever it is they're feeling right. once it starts like engaging and interacting and impacting someone else it's a different story but you know yeah. you're allowed for how you feel so just that's not an apology but I love you and what Amy Poehler said. It's all Amy Poehler. I read that and I remember like gasping and like crying and like, oh, oh shit, I've been doing this wrong for so long. And damn. <laughs> well, as we're coming to a close to this interview, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask, you know, the whole platform and everything that we're talking about is flex saving yeah. face. So what is one thing that you would really like to get out there into the world for the world to know um, about this idea? About fuck saving face. About like breaking a taboo or like, you know, really just stopping this idea that we have to be perfect and, you know, the guilt and the shame that comes with that. (laughs) What lesson have you learned? Oh man, my favorite line about guilt and shame. So, you know, I am Vietnamese. I was raised Catholic and for six months I was pretty sure I was Jewish. So I (laughs) cornered the market in guilt and shame and I am impervious to it now. As I lovingly say to my Catholic friends, I gave up guilt for Lent and never bothered to pick it up again. (laughs) Like guilt is such wasted energy. Shame, and if it's a driver, that's not good. Introspection and understanding, like opportunity to change or to make amends. Like to me, that feels really different from shame, but Mm -hmm. it's not always portrayed as such. But that guilt, that carrying on of a burden Mm -hmm. that feel like you have to wear mm-hmm. for something that happened or maybe didn't happen. Like, I don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. I don't have the emotional space for that. Mm-hmm. And since really kind of coming to terms with it, like my life has been so much more free mm-hmm. and 
just so much what everybody wants yeah right just lighter Mm -hmm. but guilt holding on to that and i think you know guilt's close friend grudges Mm. that's a little more challenging for me to give up Mm. sometimes but that constant hanging on to negative energy for things in the past and as we age and our perceptions change and you just don't know, like, was that real? Was that not? But hanging on to that emotion doesn't know what any good. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I had um, a life coach say that to me one time that guilt is like a useless emotion. Like you either learn from it and move on and, you know, rectify the situation or you don't. But I think that guilt is so pervasive in Asian households too. Like it's a huge motivator to get you to do things yeah. <laughs> or to not Again. do things. Yeah. And so work on me. Yeah. Which is amazing to like continue <laughs> to reflect and evaluate. So I love that. Thank you so much for your time. If, oh people my God, to follow, if people want to follow up with you, where can they find you? Best place to find us gosh, all over the social medias. On Facebook, look up Accept, just big capital letters. Our website is acceptgroup.org. On Twitter, we're Accept Group. Yeah, I'm kind of all over the place. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for this conversation. And it's really, it's just so affirming. Mm. And in many ways, and this is not to sound, you know, maudlin or anything, but in many ways, having having identity be such a lonely place for me Mm-hmm. for, you know, first half of my life to be able to find community to mm-hmm. discuss these things. Mm-hmm. And in such a different way is such a, such a gift. And mm-hmm. I'm just grateful that you've oh. allowed me to be a part of it. Thank you so much for being a part of it. So definitely follow up with Marie, all the work that you're doing, you know, I'm supporting it near and far. Just, I hope that we can start changing that dialogue and discussion too about higher education, about, you know, one of the other podcast episodes is all about that, like tiger parenting of success and what success looks like. And this idea of like unschooling or finding other Mm -hmm. measures of success. So I think everything that you're doing is helping so many different cultures and populations. So thank you. Yay. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. I look forward to connecting with you on Friday for our mindfulness practice. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you liked what you heard and know someone in your life who might also benefit from hearing this episode, please feel free to share it with them. Also, if you'd like to support our show, you can make a one-time donation at fucksavingface.com or you can make a recurring donation at patreon.com forward slash fucksavingface. That's fuck without the U. Subscribe today to stay tuned for all future episodes.